Tonight we're going to be talking about the marks of the church, and they there are four of them that historically have been um, discussed, written down, talked about through the history of the church. In order, though, to do church God's way, it's important to have a, a firm grasp on what a biblical church is. Uh, and that's why studying church history is helpful. Uh, it's not just a, a, a heady academic discipline. Uh, if we're not careful, if we don't study a little bit of church history or talk about it a little bit, we might be led into kind of only thinking of church in terms of how church has been during our lifetimes. So for my lifetime, it's been very short. If, I, if I'm not able to see kind of past 31 years of church history, I might have kind of a shortened view of, of what the church is and all the way down through the history from the apostles until now, how it has been uh, spoken of. So the history, the history of the church is important to rehearse so that we can kind of locate ourselves on the map in the history of what God is doing um, throughout from the time of, of Jesus' ascension to today. Here are the four attributes. They are this. The church is one. It is holy. It is universal. And it is apostolic. So we're going to go through those four things. And I'll explain what they mean. Because right now those words um, will be a little hazy or a little murky if we don't put a little context to them. The oneness of the church refers to its unity. Unity is found through partaking together in Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, all of us who are believers are unified to one another in a spiritually real way because we all share in Christ. Now, we get to picture this through a couple of things. We get to picture this through the ordinances of the church. In other words... When we're baptized, there's a reason why in a Baptist church, for instance, you need to be baptized by immersion to become a member. Why? Because we share in the same baptism. Okay? This picture is kind of what Paul says in Ephesians 4. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He says these things. So we share in the same baptism to demonstrate that we're unified together, that we're part of the same movement of God. Okay? And then that's a one-time thing. We share in the unity of Christ by the picture of baptism. But then there's another picture that the Lord gives us, and that's the picture of the Lord's Supper. This is the one that we share in an ongoing way. Okay, So as we share in this meal together, we are saying we're together. We're saying we're unified in Christ. Why? Because we are together eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, So it's a, it's a unifying moment. And that's why, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's important to say, that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul basically says, if you're not unified to somebody in the church, you need to stop and you need to go get unified with them before you take communion. He says, and we'll read this, he basically says that some of you have even become sick and died because you have drunk uh, judgment on yourself. These are very uh, strong words, but we'll get down to that. In Acts chapter 4 it says this, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In other words, the, the early church in Acts chapter 4, was, they were so unified to one another that they even shared all of their possessions in common. It says that basically they didn't, they didn't hold back anything that they owned from anyone else who was in need. 
It also says this in Ephesians 4.4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In other words, being patient with one another, right? Bearing one another's burdens. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So friends, here, here's what happens. This is the reason why church unity is so important. Because the unity that we have as a church pictures the unity that we have with Christ. And if we're not unified as a church, it's like we're saying to the world, we're really not unified to Christ. And so that's what he's saying here in Ephesians 4.4. 4. He's saying because there's one body, because there's one faith, one Savior, one Lord, because that's true, you guys need to be one together. So this is, in this sense, friends, this is why I love this, talking about uh, the doctrine of the church. It's one part church history, it's one part doctrine, and it's one part devotional, right? There's... None of this gets separated from devotion and from how our hearts should be affected by the truth that we read in the Bible. So the church demonstrates its unity, as I said, in a couple of different ways through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. That's why these pictures, God gives us these two pictures to show truth. That's why we don't mess with God's pictures, right? Uh, baptism is a picture of God. It's a picture of the gospel, right? You're buried with Christ. In the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life is a picture of the gospel. As we partake in the Lord's Supper, you, you remember the sacrifice of Jesus by this really tangible act of, of eating bread and drinking the juice. And, and then in that act, you, um, you see a picture of the gospel, right? Because Christ's body had to be broken for us to make us right. His blood had to be sp spilled for us in order to make us right. There are other pictures of the gospel. The church is a picture of the gospel. We see that in 1 Peter. We see it in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. But then marriage is a picture of the gospel, right? Uh, God says that marriage, um, that, that Christ is like the bride, and that, um, and that the ch I'm sorry, the church is like the bride and Christ is, is the groom. In other words, there's this marriage between the two. And so the way that we live our marriages is to be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. It's a picture of... Of the gospel. And so God gives us pictures. We need to protect the pictures. We need to take the pictures seriously. That's why when we do baptism, when we do the Lord's Supper, it's nothing small. It is an incredibly, incredibly serious event. So, application. How do we apply this? I've already kind of wandered into this a little bit and wandered back out. But the first thing that we can remember is that, and by the way, you remember from last week the difference between the universal church. And the local church, the universal church is every believer everywhere in the world at, at any point in history, right? Um, the local church is like our local church, those who meet here on Sunday and Wednesday, the local church here at Trenton. While the universal church is definitely one, right, the local church is the place where this plays out. In other words, there's no place for the universal church to get together and to meet as one. That's why the local church is so important. This is why I, I'm afraid, and I, I'm afraid that maybe in the time that I've been alive, and I can just speak from, from my own experience, 
in the time that I've been alive, I'm afraid that we've downplayed the importance of the church so much. Think about how, how I heard about it growing up. I heard rehearsed over and over again, you don't have to go to church to be saved. True enough, right? I mean, true enough. Church membership doesn't save anyone. Church attendance doesn't save anyone. But I'm afraid that we've spoken as if if it doesn't save you, it's not important. I'm afraid that's how it got heard. And so the emphasis became, it came to be on everybody's little personal relationship with Jesus instead of the corporate relationship with the body of believers that pushes everyone on toward faithfulness. One of the early church fathers, I'm afraid to misspeak, I think it was either Cyprian or Tertullian, I I can't remember, it would be embarrassing if it's neither one of those, right? Said, no one can have God as his father unless he has the church as his mother. That's how seriously the early church took the relationship with the church. It would, I've heard it expressed like this. If the church is Jesus' bride, you can't really say that you love Jesus if you don't care much for his bride. You know, I would be a little offended if you told me, hey, Greg, we like you, but we can't really stand your wife. <laughs> right? That would not be a loving thing to say to me. Okay, so there's an important connection between the church and uh, and the fellowship um, uh, with with God. We show our fellowship with God by having fellowship with other believers in the context of the local church, and that's why uh, Hebrews 10:25 says, "Do not forsake the gathering." That's why the gathering is so important. So hopefully, providing a little more flesh to some of the things we said last week. John 13:35 says this. Um, getting back to my point. The local church is where we show unity. It's the only place we can, right? We can't get together at the, at the Georgia Dome back when the Georgia Dome was still here. We can't get together with, with everybody uh, all around the world at one place at one time and be unified as the church. We do that in the local church. John 13:35 says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so we show unity. We show that we are in Christ We show that we're united with Christ by being united with others and loving them. Uh, Secondly, we can live this out by prioritizing the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and, uh, and taking them seriously, understanding them deeply. They are deep symbols of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, But in the following instructions I do not commend you. So Paul is about to lay into them here. It says, Because when you come together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order to show who are genuine and who are, uh, who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead to his own meal. In other words, in the early church, the Lord's Supper was actually a meal. Right? It wasn't just a little wafer and juice that, that we do. We you know, that's, that's an acceptable symbol, but the early church actually got together and shared a meal, the Lord's Supper, together. And he's basically saying when you're coming together, some of y'all are just going ahead and eating without the rest. Um, for in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. In other words, he says, some of y'all are drinking too much of the communion wine and others of y'all are not even getting a seat at the table. He says, this isn't communion. What is this? Uh, what? You don't have, uh, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
he goes down, and uh, if we skip down, he says this. Um, In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the part that pastors read during the the Lord's Supper, right? It's it's important to get all the context about what's going on here. Um, In the same way, he took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, uh, the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In other words, this is not some little trivial rote thing that we do when we get together, drink the juice and eat the cracker. He's saying you need, before you eat the cracker, you need to like examine your heart. Is there anyone that you're not at peace with? Because before you do this, you better be at peace because what you're about to do is engage in God's symbol that you are unified to Christ and unified to other people. And if you're not, you better not eat. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. These are incredible Incredible words. This is the, um, this is, <coughs> excuse me, this is the uh, the part of the Bible that is high test. So the church is one. It is unified. Secondly, it's holy. The church is holy. Now we need to speak of holiness in two ways. Remember the the Latin phrase that I gave you from um, from Martin Luther, simul justus et peccator, means at the same time just. In other words, we've been justified, been made right with God, at the same time just and a sinner. Okay, So we know none of us are perfect. None of us here are perfect. Hopefully what we're doing is repenting, right? That's a mark of a believer. How do you know a believer? Believers are the people who repent, right? They're not the people who never sin, but they're the people who repent. They're the people who turn back. So there's two kinds of holiness. There's the positional holiness that we have by being united with Christ. For those of you, for those of us who are in Christ, we are holy. We are just. God has declared it. It's a legal statement that he has made in our justification. Right? Maybe you've heard the old phrase, what does it mean to be justified? It's just if I had never sinned. Right? It's a legal declaration that you and God are okay. Okay? He's covered over your sin. There's a positional holiness. It says this, Hebrews 10.10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in other words, the holiness that we have as a church is the holiness that when God looks down on us, He doesn't see our sins. He sees what Jesus did. He sees Jesus' perfect life instead of my sin. Okay, That's the positional holiness. But there's also a practical holiness. In other words, He says in your daily lives, you need to be trying to work out what God has already worked into you. You're not in heaven yet. You're not perfect yet. So work out what has been worked into you. Work out your salvation, as it said in Philippians, with fear and trembling. So we see this in 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, how do, we, how do we do this? After all, isn't a call to holiness kind of a judgmental thing these days, right? 
If you call people to holiness, it almost sounds like you you act like you're better than them. Well, we kind of have to turn this on, on its head because we're the people who are saying, I am the worst sinner that I know. And because I'm the worst sinner that I know, I expect, I expect my heart to probably lead me astray. And so, what is God's means of protection? God's means of protection for our own fallenness and our own proclivity to sin, our own givenness to sin, is the local church. We come into a place where we, we covenant with one another. And we say... Wayne, I'm a sinner. I'm going to ask you to watch my life. And if you see me out of line, I give you permission to call me out. And to call me back to Jesus. That's what church membership is. We say the word membership, it sounds like country club membership. Or gym membership. It sounds like a subscription that you can buy into. Not at all. It's being a part of a body and asking the rest of the body to help keep you healthy. So because I'm the worst sinner that I know, I need church membership. I need people to be examining my life, watching my life, and I need to give them the keys to tell me when they see that I might be drifting, I might be going the wrong way, they have permission, they have an open door policy to beckon me back to Christ. That's what church membership is. Baptists have historically prioritized this. We've done this by... What's called regenerate church membership. As I said last week, you're not born into the Baptist church. You're born again into the Baptist church, right? That's why my two boys are not members of the church right now. One day, I hope they will confess Christ. We're praying for that every day. We're praying for that every night. I hope that they will have all of the good qualities of me and they will leave behind all the bad qualities of me. And I hope one day that the Lord would move on their hearts, open the eyes of their hearts, that they would confess Him as Lord, they would believe in Him, turn, repent of their sins, desire to be baptized, and then become members of the church. So through our church membership, we are picturing, we're picturing this forth that we believe insofar as is possible to, to determine our church membership is made up of people who are confessing Christ and who are repenting of their sins. That's what we're hoping for, right? It's what we're, that's the goal that we're shooting for. Um, so in order to achieve this, in order to achieve this, this kind of prioritization, right? Nobody's perfect. Nobody ever does it perfectly. Every church has things they need to, you know, housekeeping, things need to be cleaned up. In order to achieve this, though, Baptists have emphasized healthy, loving church discipline. Okay, I want to read you something from the history of this church. I love this. This is, this is a jewel for a nerd like me, all right, to read through this. I want to read, I want to read something to you. Um, some of it's very serious, some of it's funny, but it's all beneficial. It is almost impossible to evaluate the great contribution to society which has been rendered through the influence of Baptist church discipline. By strict, rigid discipline, the practical workings of Christianity have been kept constantly before the people. In places before law and order could be established, in other words, in the frontier parts of America, before law and order could be established, the Baptist church was a law within itself. How it yielded so great an influence without inflicting punishment is the marvel of the ages. 
Its chief secret has been the administration of justice through the spirit of love. In other words, it's not a judgmental thing to call someone back to Jesus. It's actually a loving thing to call someone back to Jesus. Its only force has been withdrawal of fellowship. In history, Baptists have used the term the right hand of fellowship. You extend the right hand of fellowship and you withdraw the right hand of fellowship. Its chief secret has been the administration of justice through the spirit of love. Its only force has been the withdrawal of fellowship and curtailment of privileges. To read the records of these early churches which have been preserved to this day gives one a thrill as he views the spectacle of justice and liberty. Old Lebanon Church, which I understand is the church that this church was birthed out of back in the day, Old Lebanon Church has just such a record. Its rules of decorum were so stated that each and every member was compelled to watch and report for any moral disorder discovered in another. Each church had its own code of morals. In Lebanon Church, we find instances of members being brought before the church for attending a barbecue on Sunday. <laughs> of unfair horse swapping. Swearing. Intemperance. Dancing. Playing the violin, adultery, heresy, and failing to attend church. So some of those, of course, we can justify by the scriptures. Others were uh, cultural things that, that probably should have been left behind, right? Like, we're, we're probably not going to church discipline anybody for playing the violin. Although I assume that you could play it so poorly that maybe it would be in order. The procedure was always the same. Anyway, he goes through the procedure, and, and basically he says, um, let's see. Uh, let's see. The procedure was always the same. A committee was appointed to interview the person charged and invite him to attend the next meeting. If he came, made a good defense, he was immediately acquitted. And if his defense did not measure up to the requirements of the church, he was asked to apologize and acknowledge his wrong. Usually a case of immorality... He was asked to promise that he would do better in the future. If he did these things, fellowship was restored. There's actually one case. Let's see what. Can't let's see. There's one peculiar case where a man had been expelled by the uh, by the church and and still proceeded to do evil. The church brought a charge against him while he was out of their fellowship. The result was that he came back, made a confession, and was duly restored. In other words, this is what we're hoping for. Matthew, This is basically Matthew chapter 18. You know, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. If he repents, you've gained your brother. Praise God. That's what we're hoping for. Uh, if he doesn't, you need to do a couple of other things. But the, 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 the point is that the hope is repentance. The hope is that, hey, you say you're a believer, you're not repenting. Would you repent? No? Mm. Would you repent? Yes. Okay, fantastic. God, oh, we've gained our brother. That's the heart, a heart of love, a heart of reaching out. Um, so, application. We are a work in progress, just like every other church. No church is totally pure because we are simul justus et peccator. We are at the same time just and sinners. However, holiness remains our goal, right? We want to show the world a picture of those who have been changed. We want to show the world a picture of changed lives. Um, all right, thirdly, the church is universal. Uh, in, in many works, they use the term Catholic with a little c. Okay? Big C would be like Roman Catholic Church when you think of Catholics. You know, Catholics that you may know, people who attend the Roman Catholic Church. Little c, Catholic, just means universal. It's just another word for universal. Now, the Roman Catholic Church uses the word Catholic in their name because they believe that they are the 
universal church. That's why they use the term. But little c Catholic means this. It means all believers in every place at every time. We see a picture of this in Revelation chapter 5. So in our local church, I'll read Revelation 5 in just a moment, but in our local church here in Trenton, Kentucky, town of 386 people, we're probably never going to have a church filled with every tribe, every tongue, every nation, right? Just based on where we are situated, where God has placed us in the world, not a good thing, not a bad thing. We hope that everyone who lives near our community would feel welcome here, no matter their background. We hope that would be the case. But one day, one day this will be true around the throne of God. Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. In other words, what will be true in heaven with Jesus is what was promised in Matthew 1.21. You will call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. There's a promise that that representatives from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be around the throne of God. That's why the Great Commission, that's why God has called us to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go therefore, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Making disciples of all nations, right? That's the emphasis. In other words, panta ta ethne, of all the ethnicities. All the ethnicities are our mission field. All the nations are our mission field. So that one day, Revelation chapter 5 will be true. That around the throne of God, there will be somebody from everywhere there. And we have to take the message. That's why the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is not, hopefully not the only way we will, that Trenton Baptist Church takes the gospel to the nations. I know that there's a history here of mission trips and different mission emphases. I'm so thankful that that church has such a rich heritage of that. But the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we as a church are able to do more by partnering with other churches than we could possibly do by ourselves. And so I would encourage you to consider how you might give and sacrifice to that in this season. Whitney and I are doing that ourselves, and we certainly love, love that opportunity. The last um, is this. With a little, uh, with a little cameo of Kentucky itself. I got, a, I got a Kentucky story to tell about this one. Apostolic. Um, this one's important to understand because a lot of confusion surrounds the word apostolic. Some churches have the word apostolic in their church name. It's like, what do they mean by that? Um, some, some churches use this term to speak of uh, that they believe they receive words from God still. That, that they, they feel that they're at, they have some kind of apostolic ministry that goes on. That they receive authoritative words from God. I, uh, just tipping my hand here, I, I clearly don't. If that's what they mean, I don't, I don't believe that that happens, right? The canon is closed. The, the apostles, the, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it says in the New Testament. That period is closed. The scriptures are complete. Do not add or take away from the scriptures, it says, numerous places. Uh, but some people believe that's what that term means. Others use it to mean that they're in the proper line of the apostles. In other words, so the Roman Catholic Church would believe that their pope can trace all the way back to, to Peter, 
right? They have like this line of succession. The Orthodox Church does the same thing. And even Landmark Baptist. This is one of the odd things about Baptist history. There was a, a big uh, kerfuffle in the 1800s uh, that revolved around even some figures in Kentucky. And even to this day, in this area, in western Kentucky, there are a lot of landmark Baptist churches. Okay? So they, they believe that they can, trace, they can trace a line from the current Baptist church all the way back to Peter through outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, long story, uh, the, the, editor, um, the editor of the Western Recorder, the Kentucky Baptist newspaper, right, the one-time editor back in the 1800s, launched a campaign against the Southern Seminary president, William Whitsett, who he thought was teaching some things that were wrong. Apparently, it was just a big misunderstanding. The, uh, but anyway, funny story that relates to Kentucky and has to do with being apostolic or thinking that you are. What these groups understand is that the term, the term apostolic, has to do with authority. Okay? So, the apostles, back in the time of the New Testament and the early church, the apostles had authority from God to speak, to write scripture, right? And so the apostles wrote scripture. They, they saw Jesus personally. As a matter of fact, if you reading in the New Testament, this was a big issue with Paul himself. Because Paul had not known Jesus while he was living and ministering, but Paul met him on the road to Damascus, right? The resurrected Christ. And so there were people saying, Paul, you're not a real apostle. You're not a real apostle because you've never met Jesus. And he said, no, I have met Jesus. He revealed himself to me. Remember, knocked him off the horse. The scales fell down. He revealed himself to me. So Paul uh, eventually, the churches came to recognize, yes, Paul, you're a, you're a legitimate apostle. So with apostleship comes authority. Okay. So how does that relate to us today as a Baptist church? In the New Testament, uh, well, Baptists have understood that the apostolic authority has moved away from people because those people are dead. That authority has moved away from people and it's moved toward the scriptures that they wrote. So the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and that authority was vested into the Scriptures. In other words, the people who had the authority wrote the words that now carry the authority. Does that make sense? All right. So Ephesians 2.20 says this. A couple of passages to illustrate this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As Ephesians 2, 20 and following. John 17, 20 and 21 say this. These are the words of Jesus. He's praying the high, this is a high priestly prayer of John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So how do people come to know God? Not through some kind of authority in some person, not even through a preacher. It's through the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and that through the word of Christ. In other words, it's the words that carry the power now. That's why I preached my whole sermon on being a word-centered or word-focused church. Because it's the word that has the authority. It's the word that has the power. 
um, believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, the Father, are in me and I in you, so they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, hearing the authority of the word of God draws you into Christ. When you're into Christ, when you're in Christ, you get to be one with God and one with other believers. And then the last one is this. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 says this. Oh, I didn't write that down. I just made a comment about it. Let me read that to you. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Remember, he's laying into the Galatians here. He's really lighting into them. That you're so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to what he says here. This is Paul, an apostle, speaking. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary from the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, the authority is not in people. It's in the message. And where do we hear the message? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. So Paul, an apostle, is even able to say the authority of the Word of God, the authority of the Scriptures, is even higher than my own authority. He said, and if I ever come to you and say something that's different from the real gospel, you don't trust me, you trust the real gospel. That's what Paul says. He says, the authority is no longer in man. The authority is in the Word. So, application. Be a Word-focused church. I just want to preach that sermon all over again now. Let's be a Word-focused church. Um, That's all I have, friends. But I do want to ask, has there been anything that I've said that's been unclear or anything that you would like to ask a question about, you're curious about? Once again, I'm glad that you're so taken with my powers of persuasion and my ability to explain complex things so effectively. Uh, Deacon's meeting's coming up next week. We'll, uh, we'll handle that then. Or you may have to discipline me for my pride even. All right, friends. Why don't we pray together? Lord God, you're so good to us. You give us your word, and you've told us that we are not to trust any other authority except for your word. We're to find comfort. We're to find uh, relationship. We're to find communion, unity with one another in the church. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace, give us the wherewithal, give us the love to be able to do this well. Help us to be a church that is one, holy, universal, and apostolic. Help us to show, even in Trenton, Kentucky, what this means. Lord, give us grace to do it well. We pray your blessings on our community, on our state, on our nation during this time that is just marked by unusual uncertainty and just um, anxiety um, and questioning. Lord, you know the end from the beginning. And so we place our hope only in you. Give us everything we need for life and godliness. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.